Well, one of the things that we are privileged here at Sanctuary, an opportunity that we have here at Sanctuary, is to be part of the ongoing formation and training of clergy within our diocese. So we get to exist pretty closely to that process. And today we have an opportunity to hear from an individual who he's uh, actively on his way into uh, serving our diocese as a clergy, moving into the priesthood eventually. And uh, so I'm really excited. We have uh, Dr. Daniel Davis, who's here to speak to us today. He is uh, part of King's University in Dallas. And uh, I don't want to take any more of his time, but welcome him as he comes. Thank you very much. Did I turn that on? Come on. All right. Oh, I hear it now. There's power in the house. Uh, good to be with you all, and um, my wife Rhonda is with me today, and uh, we, we drove up yesterday uh, from the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and have been spending some time with uh, Bishop Ed, his lovely wife Gail, and we went with uh, uh, Father Paul and Lissa and Father Gr Chris and Julie yesterday to last night. We had a wonderful time um, having dinner and they just spoiled us and made us feel great. And so, uh, and I, I love your space here. So um, great job, because this, this is like you're still in your first year here, right? So congratulations, That's, this is wonderful, wonderful, absolutely perfect space for you. And uh, love getting to know everyone and um, love getting to know uh, your, your leaders here and, and the, the work that they do for the Lord and what they invest in our lives. And so appreciate that. Uh, as Father Paul mentioned, I teach theology at the King's University there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And uh, it's, a, it's a fun place to be. It's, um, it's, an, it's not connected to any single denomination. And so, but it comes out of kind of the, what they call the renewal Pentecostal stream. And um, that's where we are. So it's fun to be in this place that has diversity and uh, diverse expression and to seek God together in that context. It's a lot of fun. My, we have three boys um, who are not with us today. They are, they're at home and they are 17 16 and 11. <clears throat> so Evan is 17, Gideon is 16, and Lincoln is 11. And so they keep us busy. Um, Evan is a senior in high school, and Gideon's junior, and, and Lincoln just started middle school in sixth grade. So they are a lot of fun. They are as different from one another as they could possibly be. So Evan is, uh, he's got his heart set. He wants to study history, teach history, in a uh, collegiate context. I don't know where he got that idea. Um, but that's what he wants to do. Uh, Gideon, he is our social person. He loves people. Uh, he wants to know, Evan wants to know where he can learn something new, discover something new. Gideon wants to know where the party is and uh, where the people are. And he's, uh, okay, so, Ron and I both have um, our doctoral degrees and we're both overachievers. Um, and I, that's not a brag, it's like something that we are daily submitting to the Lord. <laughs> like help us, deliver us. So we got to this place where Gideon, who is very, very smart, 
um, we realize he just doesn't have the same commitment about grades that we do. And we finally compromised and we said, okay, we will settle for this such and such grade is what we said, which is not an A. And I said, we will settle for that and you're fine. You can't get lower than this, that's, but we'll, and he's like, okay. And I said, no, you don't understand what it's doing to us to say that to you. And so, but he's so much fun and he's gonna do great things. Lincoln is uh, the athlete of the family. So took us three boys to get there, but we got an athlete. He's every sport he wants to, can be in. So he wants to know where is the competition that he can win. And so forming him is talking about winning isn't everything. He's like, what? <laughs> so um, it isn't, so they're a lot of fun. And we have a golden doodle named Fitz. So my wife is outnumbered, all boys, except for her men. But that, um, that's a little bit about us and we're just so glad to be developing relationships and getting to know everyone. And also, th- uh, I wanna say a special thanks to Father Paul for um, inviting me here, as well as being flexible with the text today because um, we, I asked him um, some time ago when he said, we're gonna do this, okay, so, what, I know there's a couple of different lectionaries out there. Which one do you follow? And he sent me a link. And somehow in all of the cyberspace connections, um, I landed on the wrong set of texts, which we discovered this morning. And so, um, and so he, was, he said, no problem, we can fix it. And so he went and swapped it out. Thank you. So um, if, if any of you are following along, and you're like, that's not what's on today. That's, it's because... Father Paul is great, that's why. (laughs) Um, But the text that we have this morning where Jesus is having his dialogue with Nicodemus, um, it's this morning because this week was Holy Cross, um, which is a day that we recognize and celebrate the victory of Christ on the cross. There's some historical things about it. You can look it up sometimes, very interesting. But this text that Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus and he tells Nicodemus that you know, it started with this whole Nicodemus saying, hey, you, you, know, you must be from God because you do these signs. And Jesus you know, kind of flips things on him and, and startles him and says, listen, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. You can't enter the kingdom, which confused Nicodemus because he thought he was getting it. He's like, hey, you must be from God. And Jesus says, you still don't see. You know, what? And they have this dialogue and it comes to this point where Jesus makes reference to something that happens during Israel's exodus. And we can find that passage in the book of Numbers where what has happened is during the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, that Israel's going through the wilderness, they do what they were wont to do. They begin to complain about not having the food that they want. And so they said, and in fact, they come to the point where they say, what, what you are providing us is miserable. We're tired of this miserable food. And God gets angry. Um, and I can relate to that. I, I really can, because my wife and I have begun sharing cooking duties. And so we enjoy cooking and we'll take turns and making a meal. And you know, it's not a particularly edifying experience to gather your family around and watch your sons go, 
oh, what's that? <laughs> you know, that's not exactly an exciting thing. Oh, thank you. Small ears, and so sometimes those don't work. We'll just do it that way. So it's not particularly an edifying, exciting experience when that happens. So I can understand God becoming irritated with what's going on here. And so he says to them, fine. And they begin to experience judgment. Now, what I didn't tell you, and you already know, is that the food that they were receiving was manna. It was bread that miraculously came from heaven. In fact, they called it the bread of angels in another place. So God miraculously provides manna every morning and they get tired of it and they say, we're sick of this miserable food. We're sick of this heavenly banquet. We would rather have something else. Which sounds familiar because what happens is they're giving in to the very same thing that begins with Adam and Eve, where what God provides is not enough. They think they must have something else and something more. And so it's as if God says, fine, you want the way of the serpent, reaching, grabbing, grasping for something, not being content with what I give you. You want the way of the serpent, fine, I'll let you have the serpent. And so poisonous serpents begin to afflict the camp of Israel. And the Hebrew says fiery serpents. You know, whether that meant they were bright red in color or probably the pain that was experienced when they were bitten, we're not sure. But fiery serpents begin to afflict them. And so they say, Moses, pray for us. Okay, we messed up. We got it. We were wrong. Intercede, pray. Moses prays. God tells Moses, I want you to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and lift it up. And as they look at the serpent, anyone that's bitten, if they look at that bronze serpent, they will be healed. So Moses does this. What's interesting to me in that is that what is happening, God says, I will provide salvation by putting on a pole the image of the very judgment that's afflicting you. It's really interesting. So the judgment that is afflicting you are the serpents. Look at this. Well, Jesus says, this is really about me. This is really about me. This is really a setup, a lead up to what God is intending to do with Jesus. Because Jesus says, even in the same way must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, the Gospel of John uses this term lifted up for Jesus over and over and over again. It's clear that John is wanting to present from the beginning to the end a journey of Jesus to being exalted, except the exaltation of Jesus is lifting up on the cross. And Jesus says in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that he can save the world. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians talks about this very thing, this lifting up of Christ on the cross. And he calls it the wisdom and the power of God. 
which is really strange. I mean, all of this is strange, right? Make a metal serpent, put it on a pole, look at it, you'll be healed. That's strange. I will be exalted by being lifted up on a cross and it will heal the world. That's strange. Paul says, this is the wisdom and the power of God. Let me tell you what my struggle is. Sometimes I'm frustrated with the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God really frustrates me at times. Case in point, Jesus in this experience on the cross, he's arrested, he's taken before the, the Jewish leader, count, the councils where they accuse him, he's taken from there before Pilate, and all this time he says nothing in his defense. Now listen, John says that Jesus was the literal word of God. He's the logos, the word of God made flesh. And when he's being accused, he says nothing? Nothing, I mean, when you read it, you almost, you wanna say Jesus, speak up, man. I mean, where's this bolt? We saw you. We saw you rebuke him. You know, up there in Galilee, we saw you cleanse the temple in Jerusalem. What, why are you? Why have you gone mute now? Come on, speak up, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're mocking you. They're making fun of you. Say something. And he doesn't. And Paul says that's the wisdom of God. Really? Because I could figure out a lot of clever responses to them. I mean, I can, I can, I, I'm not that bad with words. And I can come up with some really good ones that would be really smart. But it's not the wisdom of God. Likewise, I'm also frustrated sometimes with the power of God. I mean, same thing. He's arrested. He's carted about. He's beaten. Really, Jesus? I mean, you can turn water to wine. You can multiply bread and fish. You can heal the sick. You raised Lazarus from the dead. Where's the power? I mean, get, let me have it and I'll take care of this for you. And, and sometimes I really, you know, don't you just wish sometimes that you could straighten some things out? You, 10 minutes with your power, 10 seconds with your power, God, Washington, D.C., not a problem. We'll have it straightened out. It'll go the way it ought to go. Everything, everybody will work together. I mean, that, snap a finger. One second, I'll have to do it. You Give me your power, God, I'll snap a finger and it's all fixed. It's situation in my family. Just let me have your power for a moment and I'll take care of it. But when I look through this whole thing through the lens of Jesus, I have to step back and think 
wait a minute though. It seems like weakness and it seems like foolishness. But when I look at the whole picture, the life of Jesus is far too beautiful, far too amazing, far too powerful for me to simply write it off at this point. I can't do that. There's something else going on here. Jesus himself made a comment, wisdom is justified by her children. What comes as a result of what is happening? Clearly with this, ex this exaltation of Jesus on the cross, there is a deep logic and a deep power. I'm borrowing, if you remember C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan, he says, remember there's a deep magic from before the dawn of time. Those of you, if you know, you know. If not, go read it. But there's a deep magic from before the dawn of time, which is why Aslan is able to rise again. There is on the cross a deep logic and a deep power at work that doesn't seem obvious and apparent to us. But when we look at the fruit, when we look at the result, clearly there is a knowledge and a wisdom at work that is remaking the world. There is a power at work that is remaking the world. There in the apparent foolishness and weakness of God, the greatest acts of God, the great wisdom of God is taking place so that the world is being transformed. Jesus is turning the wheel of history the way he wants it to go in the most unexpected way. So that on the cross, as Augustine says, life dead slew death. The fullness of life swallowed up death. Death was absorbed in the body of Christ. There's a deep logic that doesn't make sense to me and it turns back on me and I have to realize at that point Okay, so my frustration reveals to me that I have become far more accustomed to and reliant upon the wisdom and the power of this age and this world than I wanted to admit. Every time I'm frustrated with the wisdom and power of God, it reminds me I'm living according to a wisdom and power of this age. And I have to ask myself, how effective is the wisdom and power of this age really? Think about it. Exactly how effective are bombs to do the end goal of bringing order? How effective, let's, let's bring it home. How Wise and powerful really are the cutting words that we bandy about to make people do what we want them to do. Maybe, maybe effective in the moment, maybe effective in the moment, maybe. But over time, what have we really sown and what do we really reap? Broken relationships, 
wounded souls, therapy bills. <laughs> My wife and I on the way up here yesterday were listening to this podcast about Elizabeth Holmes and the whole Theranos thing. You, the, you know, the, she's the one that sold and pushed you know, this technology that didn't exist and told everybody that it did and just lied, just lied her way to billions bullied her way to billions. It seemed effective at the moment, but the lives that are left in the wake of that, but Paul says an interesting phrase in this same passage in Corinthians when he says this, this is the wisdom of God. He says the world looks at it and sees weakness and foolishness. To those who are headed to destruction. That's what he says. To those who are being destroyed, it is, the cross is weakness and foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. But to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom and power of God. I like that he said being saved. It reminds me that I have to keep looking to the cross. My journey of salvation keeps me looking to the cross. And this is our paradox. The cross leads to life. Death leads to life. Jesus himself said it. If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life for me, you will find it. So take up your cross and follow me. It's that deep logic and deep power at work again. Go the way of the cross and find life. So the crucified Jesus, as we gaze upon the cross, invites us to join him in the crucified life so that we can find life and the wisdom and the power of God. Augustine again said, a serpent is gazed on that the serpent may have no power. What is this? A death is gazed on that death may have no power. This is the paradox. Jesus says, embrace what you think will kill you and you will live. Now ask anyone who has broken free from addictions and they know exactly what this means. Because to turn away from the addiction seems at the moment that that would kill me. I can't live without fill in the blank. I can't live without it. Ask anyone. To leave it seems death, but it is the way to life. And in the same way, I wonder as we look at our own lives, what is it that we want to grasp for in climbing our way to the top of some system or filling the bank account or making our families do what we want to do? What is it that we want to keep grasping for? To do that, 
is to reach into the serpent's den. But instead, Jesus says, join me. Give up. Give up what you think you most want and find life. Embrace what you think would kill. But if I stop trying to tell them everything to do, it'll kill us. Will it? Maybe it'll lead to life. If I stop doing this, it'll kill me. Will it? Something will die, yes. But something greater and more wonderful will live. So this morning as we gaze upon the life that Jesus gives us, as we partake of that life, as he invites us to his table, let it be an opportunity for us to say, I will embrace the cross so that I can live. I will embrace the cross and find there a deep wisdom, a deep power that actually remakes everything. That remakes everything. We weren't there when God created the cosmos. None of us was. If you, if you were, I would really like to meet you. We weren't there. It's veiled in mystery. That same mystery is at work when we embrace the cross. And that new creation springs alive in us.